Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So today uh, we read from John chapter 5, verse 1 to 18. Um, I will read it in Chinese. Um, 这是以后到了犹太人一个节期耶稣就上耶路撒冷去在耶路撒冷靠近羊门的一个池子希伯来话叫毕士达旁边有五个狼子里面有许多躺着瞎眼的瘸腿的血气呼干的许多病人耶
as influential. You know, every other person on that list, they did things, they accomplished things, they conquered things, they taught things. Everyone on that list also reshaped the world as we know it. But the greatness of Jesus is not just that he did things or that he taught things, but rather it's his greatness that is rooted in something outside of just what he did, but also who he claimed to be. And this story shows us once again that Jesus is something truly unique and someone who transcends every categorizable list of greatness. Now today we continue our series in the book of John, a series that we've called A Public Faith. And what we've been doing over the course of the series is seeking to examine some of the, the most central claims of Christianity in order that we might experience what John notes at the very end of his gospel account where he tells us that he wrote all that he wrote for the purpose of us believing in Jesus, the one who gives life. And today we uh, come to yet another story about Jesus that provides insight into the uniqueness of Jesus, a uniqueness that either makes him just like the one, uh, just either, if it's true about him, uh, makes him completely different than anything that we could possibly categorize him in, including the most influential people that has ever lived. And so to see why I think we can confidently say that Jesus is no run-of-the-mill teacher, no run-of-the-mill religious figure that's categorizable with others, let's take a look at this story of Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida and consider these three things. Let's take a look at Jesus and the pool. We're gonna see Jesus and the man and Jesus at, and the Sabbath, all right? Let's consider those first, Jesus in the pool. So we need to consider, let me recap a little bit of the story, uh, maybe in case you weren't quite able to, to follow through there. Uh, what is happening at this pool? Well, we see in verse three that this pool is where a great, quote, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. This pool drew those who were suffering. Why? Well, there was this superstitious belief that this pool had healing powers. In fact, in some older Bible translations, the translators in, they include what essentially served as a footnote in uh, early biblical manuscripts that stated this belief, that there was an angel that would come and stir up the waters, and as the waters were stirred up, if people got into the water while it was still being stirred, they would experience healing. Now that footnote is not included in many current Bibles, as there's pretty large agreement that John was not the one who wrote that footnote. Uh, and I point this out simply because if you're reading an older Bible, you're going to see it there and you're not gonna see it in newer ones and I just want you to know why it's not there. But that said, the pool was a pool that represented hope of healing for those who otherwise had no recourse in life. In fact, People were convinced that this pool would ultimately make them whole, a wholeness that they longed for but could not find elsewhere. And that would have not just been a physical wholeness. It would have also included a social and a familial wholeness as well. As you can imagine, in these times, as often in modern times as well, the people at the pool the people that were suffering at this pool were those that in many ways society very much turned a blind eye to. They would have been real social outcasts, forgotten, ignored, maybe even despised by others. 
It would have had much more than just physical brokenness in their bodies, but also an internal alienation and brokenness as well. And this pool represents the best opportunity, the greatest hope for total and complete wholeness in them. Now, by all accounts, this pool would have been a very difficult place to be with difficult things to see, uh, with an overwhelming amount of need. You could just imagine those that are there. Yet when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, interestingly, that's exactly where he goes, to this place of overwhelming need, with difficult things to see. And we've seen this in Jesus time and time again. We saw it just last week, but Jesus, he's so often not drawn to the, the powerful or the wealthy or the educated. So often, Jesus is drawn to the forgotten, the lowly, the rejected, the abused, and the oppressed. And that is not unique to this story. Again, we've seen that over and over again, and we will continue to see that over and over and over again. But I want to take the opportunity to highlight it for a moment, because it's significant for us that Jesus... The Savior is unimpressed by what we tend to find impressive. He's unimpressed with wealth and power and influence and intelligence. And though he came for the salvation of all, and though there are examples of him spending time with the elite, he was not drawn to the the palaces with kings, but rather he was drawn to the poor and the oppressed at the pool. You know, if Jesus, if he were to come to New York City today, he would not spend much of his time in the financial district, hobnobbing with the elite and the wealthy, or down at the UN with the impressively powerful of the world. You know where Jesus would be? He'd be in places like East Harlem, spending time with the poor immigrant family. He'd be in the streets, spending time with the addicted drug user, on the block, the houseless person sleeping on the street. This is not because he does not love or care about the powerful and the elite, but it does show where his heart is. It shows that he has this this pull toward, a heart for the poor and the oppressed. And it really, it's there that we see what God truly seeks to do, which is bring wholeness and restoration to people and the entire cosmos. And I say that because I want us to understand a little bit of the dynamic of sin that's important when considering why Jesus tends to be so drawn toward these uh, communities and groups of people. See, sin, we understand the nature of sin has a couple of dimensions to it. There is this, of course, sin uh, in an individual kind of sense, but there's also this corporate sense of sin. Let me explain to you what I mean. So individually, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so as a result, whether one is poor or wealthy, powerful or lowly, we all need redemption through repentance and faith. That is going to be the case for everybody. But there's also a a corporate dimension, dimension to sin. Sin uh, really does have, there's a a corporate issue where sin sin ends up weaving itself into systems and structures of oppression and injustice that are created by sinful and broken people. And those systems of brokenness and injustice and oppression, they tend to benefit the powerful and the wealthy, 
and they tend to marginalize the poor and the lonely, which means that among the poor and the lonely, we see the greatest intersection of sin's power. Amongst the poor and the lowly, we will see those who are absolutely struggling with their own personal individual sin. Amongst the poor and the lonely, there is, lowly, there is a need for repentance and faith, just like everywhere else. But also amongst the poor and the lowly, you see the greatest burden of corporate and systemic sin. But the wealthy and the powerful will more easily as a result of not experiencing that full burden the way the poor and the lowly do, more easily struggle to look beyond the comforts of this world and long for that restoration of the kingdom because this world too often feels like home. And so Jesus goes to the pool of Bethsaida because it is instructive for all of us that regardless of life's circumstances, This world is not our home. We are in need of personal, individual redemption, and we're also in need of a savior that's going to crush the systems of oppression that exist in the world. This is one of the reasons why God goes to the pools, why he goes to the oppressed, because it's so often there that we see sin's greatest impact. But of course, he does not just go to the pool But rather, as he's at the pool, he also interacts with those at the pool. And in particular, what we see in our story is that Jesus interacts with this particular man. So let's consider Jesus and the man. Uh, Though there were, of course, very many at the pool, Jesus hones in on one guy in particular. And verse 5 tells us that that he was one who was there, who, sorry, he... The one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. In other words, this man had an ailment that plagued him for a literal lifetime. And he has been at this pool a long time, hoping, hoping that at some point this pool would be his saving grace. And this man also emphasizes what I said earlier about it not just being a physical ailment. Look at uh, verse 6. We see that there's something even more than his physical brokenness. It says that when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. In other words, this man had no friends. He was socially isolated. And also, people saw him and ignored him, pushed past him, and were completely indifferent to his plight because no one was willing to help. He experienced not only the the worst of the, the physical ailments that this world had to offer, but he's also experiencing some of the worst isolation and relational marginalization that this world could offer as well. And this pool was his hope of finally experiencing some measure of wholeness. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because I don't want us to miss a pretty important application for all of us here. Because this pool certainly represents hope for the marginalized and the broken. But this pool, even more so, represents hope, doesn't it? It represents hope for them. To experience healing in this pool, for many, including this man, would mean again the wholeness that it offers, 
the wholeness that it seemed to promise. And in this way, every one of us sitting here has a pool in their life. We are all sitting in some way, shape, or form, sitting next to our own pool of Bethsaida, believing that if I could just get into that water, whatever that might be, I could have whatever it offers and that its offering would ultimately bring wholeness. For some of us, our pool, our hope, our pursuit of wholeness is occurring through our career successes. Meaning if I can just get that certain level, that certain promotion, I'll have wholeness, the wholeness that I've been longing for. And so I sit next to that pool, hoping that at some point I'll be able to experience it. For others, our pool is our financial stability. You know, if I can achieve that amount of money, I'll have that wholeness, that rest, that hope that I've been longing for. For others, it's beauty and attractiveness. If I can just achieve or maintain that level of attractiveness, I will experience the wholeness that I've been longing for. For others, it's relationships. If I could just have that guy or that girl, or maybe it's not even a specific person, but it's just the idea of a relationship. If I could just have that thing, that relationship, I would find the wholeness that I've been longing for. For others, it's a, it's a sense of, of self-made identity. You know, if I can just tap into and discover who I'm meant to be, then I'll have that wholeness that I've been longing for. And just as a side note, that one in particular is such a persuasive and deceptive pursuit. You know, the modern notion of discovering who I was meant to be is so often a cruel pursuit that leaves so many of us devastated by our inability to find the wholeness that it seemed to promise. But whatever we think, explicitly or implicitly, will bring us a sense of wholeness, my friends, it's our own pool at Bethsaida. And to put it kind of crassly, those pursuits, right, those pools are superstitious beliefs in an angel that's going to come and stir the water. And sitting next to that pool, desperately believing that it will bring me wholeness, ends up being a fool's errand because it will give nothing but disappointment. And so the question for all of us would be, what is our pool? We've all got one. But consider something else that happens here. What's interesting about this man is that he's talking to Jesus. Right? And when Jesus, the one who we will see in a moment, actually brings wholeness, asks if he wants to be healed, what does the man say? The man says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Catch what that interaction is communicating. I mean, he's meeting Jesus, his true salvation, but all he wants from Jesus is for Jesus to help him get in the pool. He can't stop thinking about it. And my friends, this is so often as well how we sacralize our own pools. Meaning Jesus too often is not our wholeness. He's not our salvation. He's simply the one who's going to help us achieve it. 
So often, Jesus becomes a means to an end. You know, he's the way I'm going to get my career success, my financial stability, my relationships, my inner discovery. We don't actually often want him. We want what he can give us. We want him to help us get into our pool because it's that pool that we still believe is our true salvation. But one of the greatest graces of God is that he refuses to allow his people to be deceived by the allures of the pool. Instead, because of his mercy, he interjects and disrupts that entire idolatrous paradigm. And look at what he does with the man. So after the man, again, references the pool, in verse 8, Jesus says, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. First, notice, the man did nothing to deserve or earn this salvation, and yet, nonetheless, it comes from Jesus. This Jesus, the one who comes to our pool, by his grace, interjects and disrupts our idolatrous paradigms and provides us salvation that we did nothing to deserve and that we didn't even know to ask for. It's one of the beauties of Jesus meeting us. But if this story ended there, right, this man receiving his physical healing, I think we'd actually miss out on what Jesus really was trying to accomplish here. Right, because the story doesn't just end with Jesus interjecting, bringing this man this measure of salvation and healing. Right, we might actually walk away from this story only thinking about our own pool-shaped longings if this was truly the end of the story. But the story doesn't end there because as a result of the healing, a bit of controversy kicks up. And this brings us to my final point. And to return back to where we started, it emphasizes the real uniqueness of Jesus. Let's consider Jesus in the Sabbath. So let's start back at verse 8 so we get a little bit of context. So let me read it for us. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Let me pause there for a minute. What's happening there? Well, as you may know, the Jewish people of the day had very, very strict rules concerning what one was allowed to do and not do on the Sabbath. This was supposed to be a day of rest, a day set aside for the service and worship of God. But over the years, over the centuries, Jewish leaders had developed dozens of different types of work that were prohibited, including carrying something from one place to another. It was not allowed on the Sabbath. Now, to be clear, nowhere does God ever command such prohibitions. Uh, maybe you've heard this term before, but this is the idea of legalism, the idea of adding to God's law our own rules, our own regulations, and using those rules and regulations as a measure of godliness. And frankly, these debates very much still rage today, uh, it, or even around the Sabbath and what's allowed and not allowed on the Sabbath. In some for what it's worth, my perspective uh, is that we should absolutely set aside a day for rest and for worship. And various people across different cultures and time 
may have a different perspective on what exactly that requires. But those perspectives are not necessarily universally required for all. And when we try to make them universal, we end up like these religious leaders, adding to what God commands, creating unnecessary burdens. And here what we have now are these religious leaders confronting a man who was just healed over the fact that he's carrying and walking with his mat. The irony of it, of course, is stunning to us, but then it continues on. Verse 11. But he replied, that's the man, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14, later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Interesting turn of events here. This man who was just healed by Jesus, you would think should be rejoicing and praising God for this great grace that he just received. He's just experienced not only the physical wholeness, but is likely about to experience that whole, that uh, social wholeness as well. But instead, when confronted, we've seen no words of praise or gratitude from this man. Instead, he tries to shift blame onto Jesus for making him pick up his mat. And we see the extent to which he's trying to get out of trouble in verse 15, Jesus ends up meeting the man again, and after, this, after their conversation, we see that the man, he runs back to the religious leaders and tattles on Jesus. This is his first instinct. And I draw this out because I want us to notice how easy it can be for all of us to experience the grace of God in various ways when maybe he has even given us what we hoped for from the pool, but then so quickly fall into a lack of gratitude and praise for his grace. This man's life was radically changed, but he could not be bothered to turn that grace into praise. And I would argue we do the same every day. But here's where it all comes to a head. These leaders confront Jesus about the violations of the Sabbath because from their perspective, the only person allowed to work on the Sabbath was God himself. And in response to that claim, look at what Jesus says in verse 17. In his defense, Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, you say, religious leaders, that only God is allowed to work on the Sabbath. So what's the problem? Right, this is Jesus essentially saying, I am God. I have every right to work on the Sabbath. And the leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming because in verse 18, it says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. And this, my friends, going all the way back to where we started, is why Jesus cannot be compared to anyone else on any list ever. Napoleon, Muhammad, Shakespeare, Lincoln, George Washington, 
George W. Bush. All changed the world as we knew it. But none of them were God in the flesh. And the irony of Jesus being accused of breaking the Sabbath is actually in you know, Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6. Jesus is called the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, there's a whole, I could spend a whole afternoon talking to you about Sabbath, but the Sabbath was not ultimately primarily a day of rest for us. Rather, if we go back to where the Sabbath was first instituted, what we're seeing there is that this day of rest is actually supposed to be a foretaste of greater rest and eternal rest. You know, in Genesis 2, when God rested, when God Sabbathed, it was not because he needed rest. Rather, again, not to go down this rabbit hole, but the seventh day of creation, unlike the other days, never actually has an evening, meaning God's Sabbath rest continues even to, even to today. It's this never-ceasing rest, and that matters because God's Sabbath rest is eternal and never-ending rest. His kingdom, an eternal kingdom, is a kingdom of perfect rest, and Jesus is the Lord over that rest. And so for clarity, who is Lord over the eternal but God himself? Jesus is God, and time and time again claims himself to be. But as God, as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus welcomes us into his eternal rest. And we are so often naturally inclined to simply sit by the pool of Bethsaida, hoping to find our wholeness there, hoping to find our rest there. And Jesus is saying, let it go. Pick up your mat and walk away. Experience my eternal wholeness and rest, my Sabbath rest, for I'm Lord over it. But my friends, to experience that kind of rest, we need to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus cannot be someone that we look to to help us get into the pool. He needs to be someone who's pulling us away from, dragging us away from those pools. We need to see him as the God of wholeness. We need to see him as Lord of the Sabbath. We need to see him as the one who not only heals our afflictions, but on the cross takes them upon himself. We need to see him as the one who calls us to follow him, to trust him, to obey him, to hope in him, to rest in him, leaving behind our obsession with our pools. We must see him as Lord, Lord of the Sabbath, our eternal rest. And so friends, I ask you, what is your pool? What is this alluring pool that keeps you broken, sitting next to it, never bringing you the wholeness and rest and hope that it claims. What pools are you literally spending a lifetime sitting next to, completely missing that Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, is standing in front of you, telling you to pick up your mat and walk away? We've all got them. And so I would encourage you, name them. Name them so that they are abundantly clear in your mind. And ask the Spirit of God to meet you there and encourage you to trust Jesus. Trust that he really is the one who will bring that full satisfaction. 
that you'll find nowhere else. Let's pray together. Father, first we acknowledge the grace and the, um, the joy-filled reality that you see us in our brokenness. So often, the burdens and cares of this world can lead us to feel like we're alone, lead us to feel like you're not there. But Lord, you remind us time and time again that you see us. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem and going to the place of greatest brokenness is a reminder of where your heart is. Your heart is for the broken. But Lord, we also thank you that just like Jesus coming to the pool, you don't desire for us to remain there, but you also desire to bring healing, restoration, and wholeness. But Lord, in order to experience the fullness of your rest, it does require us to get up and walk away from those pools and instead trust that what Jesus offers is far greater Lord, I acknowledge in my own heart, and I imagine in the hearts of many here, that is actually much harder to do than we want to admit. We have so much wrapped up in the hope of that pool. And so, Lord, I pray that just as Jesus interjected, interrupted, disrupted the man's assumptions, that you would do that for us as well. Do whatever you need to do, Lord, to break our gaze off the pool that we might hope and trust in you fully and completely. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.com.